The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening. And enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, tonight's episode includes mentions of violence against animals and children, as well as sexual assault against minors. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hello there, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm Eric Peabody, your humble host, and I'm back in the studio after an unexpected adventure last week. You can hear all about that over on the main Chilling Tales for Dark Nights channel, but for now, let me just say that I'm glad that I keep a spare head in a jar. Now that I'm back among the living and ready for action, we're going to be staving off our post-Halloween blues with a particularly grisly double feature this evening. Both of these stories are horrifically gruesome in various ways, listeners, so gird your loins and we'll jump in. Our first tale is Beastie by Megan Meehan. You know, sometimes you meet a kid and know right off the bat, that is one despicable little bastard. This is the case with Matt Brewer, who we meet as a small child. Already at the age of five, he's quite the terror to be around, and we have the dubious pleasure of following the evolution of his cruelty as he ages. However, there's always a point where someone goes too far. And as they say, karma can be a bitch. Following that, we'll finish up our evening with Diary of the Red Spike by Matt Martinek. Our story opens with our narrator recounting the worst day of his life, September 11th, 2001. While this day lives in infamy for many of us, our narrator's wife was an employee working in the South Tower on that day. None of us know in advance how we might handle such a tremendous loss, and in this story, 
we see an example of the darkest places that one might go. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better. And dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now, from author Megan Meehan, I give you Beastie. Matt Brewer was a bad kid. A there's-something-wrong-with-him kind of kid. People were afraid of him, and that was just how he liked it. As a child, his behavior had been off-putting, but not by intention. Matt simply acted out the urges to kick and scream and bite and punch that he was not able to control nor contain. When he was five, he got banned from the playground for pushing other children down and causing a dozen scraped knees in two weeks. When he was seven, he had nearly drowned his young neighbor in the pool after an argument over a float. That had been his first and last invitation to a birthday party. He had done these things knowing that they would upset, unsettle, the adults, but he had done them purely on impulse, instinct. Yet, as he got older, he started to cultivate his image as a weirdo, a creep. He liked keeping people at bay. Making others uncomfortable was the ultimate power rush. Matt supposed that there probably was something wrong with him. Other kids, even the tough-talking jocks, didn't experience delight from shooting squirrels with BB guns and lacing bread with poison just to watch pigeons suffer through death throes. Those were hobbies that Matt alone savored. He didn't care for others. He had no friends, and that was how he liked it. People 
irritated him. Once, when he was ten, his mother had finally given in to peer pressure and attempted to force a friendship upon him with Fred, the awkward and gangly grandson of her portly co-worker, Barbara. Both boys were close to the same age and both were misfits, so the adults naturally assumed that they were kindred spirits who would obviously become fast friends. They assumed wrong. Matt and Fred had been left alone one sunny summer afternoon. The play date started out in the overgrown backyard of Fred's ramshackle house, but quickly led to both boys sneaking off into the woods after Matt suggested that it would be fun to go digging for worms to put into the refrigerator. He giggled just imagining the horrified screams of Fred's granny when she opened the fridge and discovered the withering, muddy mess of worms stocked upon the shelves. Fred had simply gone along with the plan. He was almost catatonically agreeable, but Matt still regarded him as an annoying third wheel. He couldn't walk briskly through the foliage and said he disliked nature. He also mentioned being unable to swim, and so, when they got to a rocky stream, Matt hadn't been able to resist pushing Fred into the water. He had landed with a hard splash, and Matt giggled wildly as he watched the other boy flail about, shrieking. When Fred finally managed to stand up, he was sobbing and stuttering and seemingly trying to cuss Matt out. "'You're a jerk!' Fred managed to utter before he looked down and saw nearly a dozen leeches stuck to his legs. The sight sent him into a gale of hysterics. He stomped through the woods so frantically that he fell and shattered his ankle with an audible snap. He lay there, hoarse from screaming and crying, with his ankle bent unnaturally to one side and the leeches sucking away at his pale legs. Pathetically, he begged Matt to help him. I bet you're sorry you called me a jerk now, Matt stated calmly as he walked away. Ignoring Fred's pleas for help, Matt spent the next two hours collecting the fattest, juiciest earthworms he could find. He then returned to Fred's house and put them in the fridge. He laughed uproariously when Barbara woke from her nap and opened the fridge and screamed like all the demons in hell were after her. Matt had snickered until his sides hurt, and then ran two blocks home before he was spotted. It was at least three hours before anyone inquired about Fred's whereabouts. Barbara called Matt's mother at 8pm, and Matt confessed that they had gotten into an argument and he had left him in the woods earlier in the afternoon. He failed to mention anything about the leeches or the broken ankle. The adults discovered those realities when they found Fred babbling and bloody at the edge of the woods. He had to be taken to the hospital. The police chief had come around to Matt's house, but Matt denied any involvement in the injury. It was okay when I left him. Matt insisted very matter-of-factly, and the police left. No one could prove otherwise, and besides, he was only ten old enough to know that the authorities couldn't send a miner up the river. 
Fred and Matt never had another play date, and Barbara stopped working at the shop and go right after that, so Matt's mother ceased mentioning her and her feeble grandson in conversation. In truth, Mildred Brewer never said much, period. She was a quiet woman who spent most of her life stocking shelves or tending to the garden. She didn't communicate well with her only child, but she always defended him. She also defended her husband. Local gossip said that he had run off with a carny. Mildred said he had been the victim of a kidnapping. Either way, he was out of the picture. As he got older, Matt was left alone more as his single mother worked longer hours. Matt supposed that was because she preferred the store to being home alone with him. By 14, he had been banned from the local pool, forbidden from entering the ice cream parlor, was on the mall security's watch list, and removed from school. Mildred said he was being persecuted, which was arguably true. After all, he never did anything overtly violent. The lifeguards couldn't prove he'd unhooked Carrie Lindley's top in the crowded waiting pool. The ice cream man couldn't confirm he'd thrown the dead rats under the tables. The mall guards didn't actually witness him ogling women in the underwear department. The fidgety school principal couldn't even cite a specific reason to bar him, except to say that he didn't seem to get along with the other students, and freely offered him an online class option. Matt readily accepted it. He liked the solitude of the internet. The internet had, in fact, opened many doors for Matt. He discovered BDSM and rape fantasy websites. They changed his life. The idea of having such power, such control, over a helpless female was more enticing and exciting than anything he had ever imagined. Sometimes, on his rare excursions into town, he'd spot some limber little peer and stare fixedly at her. Carrie Lindley was his primary target of untoward affection, and it was she who had fanned the flames of his addictive desire. Ugh, you're such a beast! She'd sneered at him whilst pushing past him at the Memorial Day parade. Yes, a beast. Matt liked the sound of that. He even started creating misshapen figures, beasties, out of clay. One day, he decided, he would become a serial killer and leave a grotesque figurine with the body of each victim. That goal gave him something to look forward to. Matt also looked forward to seeing Carrie. He knew just how to make her notice him. She liked animals and volunteered at a local wildlife rescue center. If he caught a bird and then broke its wing, he could call the rescue when she was on duty and say that he found it and was trying to help it. When she came to get it, he would lure her into his house. He would give her cake and a drink laced with his mother's sleeping pills. Carrie would doze off and he would be able to cop a feel. He wouldn't fuck her. He knew all about DNA evidence. But she wouldn't be able to prove anything if he merely fondled her. Besides, he was only 14. It's not like they could try him as an adult. 
And so, one warm June day, Matt descended into the woods with his slingshot and a few rocks. He would catch a bird and injure it, but not kill it. For this hunt, he needed live bait. Matt expected to secure a feathered victim within ten minutes, but the forest was oddly silent. He walked in deeper and deeper, mindful of how easy it would be to lose his sense of direction. Suddenly, he heard an inhuman roar followed by the rhythmic sound of thuds and breaking branches. For the first time in his life, Matt felt fear as something heavy slammed into the back of his head. He fell to the ground and blacked out. The next thing he knew, sharp claws were pawing at him, tearing his clothes to shreds and slicing into his skin. Matt screamed in pain and looked up to see a huge, hairy, red-eyed, and horribly menacing creature staring down at him. Matt whimpered and tried to back away, but his aching head and throbbing body refused to budge. Then, the creature roughly grabbed him by the neck and swung him upwards, seemingly snickering at his dismay. Matt stared into the creature's bright, unblinking eyes and registered both intelligence and an absolute lack of emotion. He hoped it would simply bite his head off and end his agony and humiliation quickly, but instead it threw him over its shoulder and carried him back to its cave. The creature didn't devour Matt. Instead, it tied him up with leafy vines and left him lying naked on a filthy bed of leaves. It enjoyed caressing him, exploring every inch of him, and worse, much worse. Matt had always assumed that sexual gratification was enjoyable, but there was nothing gratifying about their unnatural couplings, at least not in his opinion. Its appetite was quite insatiable. The more unsatisfied he was, the more he cried and screamed and begged and pleaded, the more zealous its passions became. Occasionally, it would beat him with a sharpened stick until he cried out, and, over time, he learned to feign enjoyment as if he shared its euphoria. He expected it to become pregnant and eventually present him with a half-breed little beastie, a monstrosity that walked the line between human and missing Link, but no such thing occurred. There was lots of baby-making, or what constituted for mating in the realm of its depraved lair, but never a baby born. After what seemed like forever, Matt's cries pleads for assistance which he managed to mask as howls of pleasure, attracted the attention of another beast. It entered his captor's cave to gawk and grunt at him, and when its back was turned, Matt's tormentor bit into its neck, ripping out the jugular and splashing Matt with its hot, gooey blood. Matt's kidnapper devoured its cannibalized victim and made a nest out of its bones in the dark recesses of the cave. As expected, Matt soon found himself splayed across that very bony bed, being vigorously defiled, 
Blacking out from exhaustion and disgust was his sole escape from the misery of his slavish existence. The creature sporadically threw Matt raw scraps of meat, which he desperately devoured. As a reward for each meal granted, he obediently, begrudgingly, offered his body to the creature, who readily accepted time and time again. And so it went on time and time again. Their non-consensual union remained steadfast. Matt soon realized that his bedfellow was encouraging of his cries. It liked luring other creatures of its kind into the cave. It liked dispatching them. It liked savoring their flesh. Inhuman victim after inhuman victim met its end after being lured by Matt's presence. Days turned into months, and months turned into years. Matt's fate was sealed. He was the beastie's bait. You've been listening to Beastie by Megan Meehan. Megan J. Meehan is a published author, poet, cartoonist, and produced playwright. She is a freelance journalist, a college-level educator, and the founder of the Conscious Perceptionalism Art Practice. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, listeners, from Matt Martinek, I present Diary of the Red Spike. Human blood, once outside the body will freeze at negative three degrees Celsius, which is slightly colder than the freezing point of water. A layman would not know this, but I am not a layman. I'm not a scientist either. I am that which cannot be defined. The beginning, the true seed to my story, does not have to do with the simple definition or scientific fact. It's... It's much more complicated than that. After all, tragedy in itself has so many layers. The day that those towers, along with my life, fell into the earth was a turning point, a true fork in the road for my psyche. My wife, Carol, worked on the 102nd floor of Building 2 as an insurance agent for the AON Corporation. 
The impact zone from the airplane encapsulated floors 77 to 85. Obviously, she did not survive. Most parts of that day I cannot remember, at least not in any worthwhile clarity. Shock is a funny thing. The last moments of normalcy I had were spent in my classroom, where I taught fifth grade English, with my eyes glued to the television screen as the events unfolded. The din of the children grew and grew, with some of them calling my name as they looked for some source of comfort or reassurance that things were still okay. I instead provided them with a spectacle as I lost consciousness and passed out to the floor upon the realization of my wife's location at that very moment. Things were not okay, and never again would be, for anyone. The flyer with her photo was posted everywhere, along with all the rest. Missing. That's what it said. After a little while, I wanted to replace them all with a revised version that read, Dead. Pure. Fucking. Dead. My wife is dead. I admired the families who held out hope. You know, the hope that somehow, one day, their lost loved ones would just show up at their doors, unscathed. Unfortunately, I did not have the strength for such a thing. I retreated into myself, into the apartment that now seemed much too large and frightening for a one-person show. The remnants of my wife could only be found in those living quarters that had become my prison. I didn't clean. I didn't tidy up. I wanted it to be just as we had left it that day, as we rushed hurriedly to our all-important jobs, nearly knocking each other over as we scurried out the door. <sighs> Those moments that we threw away as if they didn't matter. But oh... They did. Ignorance is bliss, or so they say. We didn't even share a goodbye kiss. How pitiful is that? I never went back to work. Couldn't bring myself to. I relied on our nest egg, which thankfully was not meager, to make it through those lonely months, locked in that makeshift shrine. I left the apartment for the occasional grocery trip or to make sure my car still started, but that was about it. The rest of my time was spent trying to reclaim the past by looking at old photos, burying my face in my wife's dirty laundry that she had left behind, and occasionally spraying her Chanel No. 5 in our bedroom as I tried to remember what it felt like to be whole. The evenings were never kind. My nightmares shifted back and forth. One night, I would see her burning alive and melting into the floor as she sat at her desk, busy with an insurance call. And the next, I would see her making the fateful leap out of the window and plummeting to the ground below as she wailed into the heavens. I always preferred the latter, as every once in a while, I would be allowed to enter the dream and swoop down like Superman to save the damsel in distress. The reality of her demise, however, would never be known to me in my waking moments. I fell further and further into the darkness. Pain turned to anger, 
and anger and a hate, but what was I to do with it? I did not know. What I did know, however, was that a man has certain needs. Though I no longer had my wife, my sexuality remained intact and began to nag at me with a forcefulness I couldn't ignore. I longed, not for a relationship, but for the simplicity of a woman's touch, that same touch that I had taken for granted for so very many years. Interestingly enough, on September 11th, 2002, on the one-year anniversary of my loss, I decided not to attend the memorial service that was planned for the multitude of victims. Instead, I led a prostitute into my apartment with the intent of doing whatever I wished for as long as I would wish it. Love? Of course not. Just sins of the flesh. It was not a proud moment for me, doing such a thing, but I felt that I had no other option available to me. Amber, as she wanted to be called, made the initial introduction as painless as she possibly could. She could tell that I was nervous as I approached her on the street, nearly shitting my pants as I cleared my throat and began to speak. She patted the crotch of my jeans with her palm before I could get out three words. I immediately laughed at the gesture, and she snappily replied, Oh, honey, it'll be okay. Don't be so uptight. This is about fun, right? So let's make it that way. With an icebreaker like that, my worries were put to rest, and, strangely enough, there was no pimp or handler in sight, which made it even easier still. We made the five-minute stroll over to my apartment building and ascended the stairs to the third floor, where the shrine to my previous life would be forced to accept an actual visitor. As we entered the apartment, I was able to focus a little more on the woman that stood before me. Underneath the streetwalker's clothing and layers of badly applied makeup was actually a very pretty girl. About the height of my late wife, blonde, though I think it was dyed, and quite an athletic build. Her tanned legs really caught my attention as they sprouted from her short, pleather skirt. I was chomping at the bit when she immediately soured the mood. Terribly. So, your wife at work or something? Amber pointed to a framed picture of Carol and I on the wall, with a smart-ass look and smirk on her face. No, not at all. My wife passed last year, in the towers. I spoke in a cold, flat, unemotional tone. Now was not the time, Amber. Oh my god, I'm so sorry! I didn't mean to- It's perfectly fine. Honest mistake. I'm sure you get that a lot. You know, men cheating on their wives and such. Par for the course, I would assume. After all, men are pigs. I took Amber by the hand over to my couch, where I began to disrobe her. She kept looking towards the bedroom, but I wasn't having that. There was no way I was going to disrespect my marital bed. I would say that I was a bit animalistic as I devoured this woman sexually. A missing year of intimacy is no small thing. She was not prepared. 
There were moments of pain on her part, but moments of pain for me as well, as my thoughts raced back to the love of my life and how much I missed her. One moment in particular, however, changed the game completely. In the midst of my thrusting, I looked down at Amber's face and instead saw nothing but my wife. Only for a moment, Carol's face then quickly disappeared. I lost myself and wrapped my hands tightly around Amber's throat. I squeezed as hard as I possibly could. You are not my wife! I remember tears streaming down my face before I blacked out. This is what I did with all of that pain. I had made a decision. I woke up with my face sunk into a puddle of saliva that had collected on Amber's quickly bluing breast. I fell off of the couch, startled, and retreated into the bedroom, slamming and locking the door behind me. Like a child, I jumped into the bed and yanked the covers on top of me, scared of the monster who lurked outside the door. I didn't want to believe it, but I knew that the monster was real, and it was one of my own creation. All of that pain, all of that anger, was let loose on this poor woman whom I didn't even know. After an hour or two, or more, not really sure, I gained enough courage to unearth myself and slowly open the bedroom door. Some naive part of me expected to find an empty couch, and for me to realize that it was all just some delusion or bad dream. As the old door creaked open just enough for me to see Amber's nude, discolored leg hanging down off of the couch cushion, I slammed it shut once again. It was real. I fucking killed her. To observe a human body after death is not something an uninitiated person can handle mentally. The color, the bloat, the mess that is expelled. I wasn't prepared for such a thing. I couldn't bring myself to even touch her. I simply watched, day after day, as her body began to change. As her stomach swelled and she began to stink, however, I knew that I had to do something. My freedom depended on it. And so, after a trip to the hardware store, I began to take her apart, piece by piece. She fell away, slowly, onto the tarp I had placed on my kitchen floor, just for the occasion. I was fourteen again, dismantling a fetal pig in biology class. The entire time, though, through all of the cutting and all of the sawing, I expected the police to bust down my door at any time and take me away. But they never showed. Hell, the phone that was in Amber's purse never even rang once. It was like no one gave a fuck about her, like she never even existed to begin with. She was the perfect victim. Over the next two weeks, I drove pieces of Amber and her personal effects all over New York, being careful not to leave anything within 25 miles of my apartment. Feet were thrown off of bridges in the middle of the night, arms and legs dispatched into dumpsters hiding in unassuming alleyways. 
The head was buried off of a trail in Bear Mountain State Park. You get the idea. After the final pieces had left my possession, I felt strangely proud of myself for being able to pull it off. Excited, almost. There was one thing I did keep, however. Amber's blood. I collected every drop that fell. I could have dumped it down the toilet or poured it down the kitchen sink, nice and easy, but I didn't. I kept it in my fridge instead, neatly collected into eight sealed, equally filled mason jars. I wasn't even sure why. Days passed, though my hatred did not dissipate. I was hoping, somehow, that through the murder I would be able to put my demons to rest, but I was wrong. And every day, whether I would find myself making a sandwich or getting a glass of milk, my eyes would wander to those shiny, crimson jars of blood that I kept. I started a ritual of removing them from the fridge and stirring the contents, as I had noticed that a kind of separation began to occur. It became some sort of sick, morbid fascination. Somewhere in the deepest recesses of my mind, I appreciated the situation Amber had afforded me, and I didn't want to forget her. As we all know, blood is everything. I wanted nothing more than to shout out at humanity, maybe even to God himself. I wanted them all to notice my pain and to realize that I existed. My pain should be theirs. Lives didn't really mean anything to any of them, just a multitude of tiny ripples sinking into the beach. My late wife's memory was nothing more than wet sand to be walked upon by the ignorant. But maybe, just maybe, I could make them see differently. If they knew that there was a monster among them, in plain sight, they would learn to appreciate the gift that they had. I wanted more, and more is what I was set on taking. For whatever reasons, my thoughts kept returning to an old idea I had come across from long ago. I had seen it on the television late at night when I was a teen. The idea of some of these hitmen actually trying to devise a bullet made from ice that would make the tracking of their weapons completely impossible. In my situation, I needed something exactly like that. The ice would melt, leaving no trace whatsoever. After a while of running it over in my mind, I truly believed that this could be the path. But it would not be a bullet. It would need to be a little more personal, and a little easier to fashion. I wanted something quick, practical, and violent. The method that seemed to make the most sense to me was to create some sort of knife or severely pointed object for the fatal blows. And so, I began to experiment. I ordered a small deep freezer and a home kit for latex mold making. Within a week, they were delivered straight to my apartment. Obviously, I had no idea what I was doing at first, but I was intent on learning. The test pieces went terribly. I first used a kitchen knife to make the latex form for the ice weapon, 
but the product that came out was much too fragile. No way that it would kill a person. I then made another mold, using a motorized sanding tool to form the hardened latex cavity into a knife-like shape, though somewhat thicker than before. Again, though, it was simply too weak. I was using a watermelon to test the hardness. I figured if the ice could pierce the watermelon, it could pierce flesh easily. What I was making didn't even come close. The ice shattered to the kitchen floor with each attempt. I was stumped. One evening, as I was pacing in my apartment, racking my brain about this little project I was embarking on, I realized that what I needed had been staring at me right in the face all along. See, my father worked on the railroad for many, many years. Every so often, when he would hit a milestone of employment, the company he worked for would present him with an award for time served. And the award? It was usually a shiny, plated railroad spike mounted to a varnished piece of oak. When my father died, one of his possessions that I took home was one of these awards, which now sat on a shelf in my current living room. A railroad spike was a perfect model for the weapon. Thick and sturdy. I would simply have to make it a little sharper, that's all. Unfortunately, though the spike itself was the perfect model, the frozen version of it still refused to pierce the watermelon. It snapped in half as I stabbed with it. I began to realize that maybe it wasn't so much the shape of the item, but instead the strength of the ice that I really needed to concern myself with. In my mind, ice was ice. It's ice if it's frozen at 10 degrees, and it's ice if it's frozen at below zero. Was it even possible to strengthen such a thing? I nearly abandoned the idea altogether, until I came upon an article online that described, in detail, how to make ice nearly as hard as concrete. To my amazement, I read that if you add a certain amount of sawdust to the water that you want to freeze, the frozen product will be remarkably strong. They refer to it as picrete, and it's been used experimentally for years, especially in Arctic climates. I quickly found out that this was no myth. The frozen spike now pierced the watermelon with ease. I had done it. I ran the situation over in my mind time after time. The victims would be random. No preferred type, only preferred location. Ah, the nonsensical killings of a god. I would troll the streets and back alleys of New York with my weapon in tow, waiting for an opportunity. I had purchased gripped mechanics gloves to negate slippage of the spike, and even a small briefcase for carrying it that I had outfitted with insulation to prevent melting. I was so excited to begin the process, but then it happened. I opened my refrigerator door, and there they were the jars full of Amber's blood. It hit me at that very moment. There was a reason why I had saved them after all. It was not to be a spike frozen of water. It was meant to be a spike frozen of blood. Amber's blood. She was still with me. 
I had to do a bit of experimentation, of course, but I was still able to reach the same result as far as the practicality of the weapon went. The temperature of the freezer needed adjustment, as did the sawdust ratio, but that was to be expected. I did a test run of the blood spike, and it popped right into the watermelon without hesitation. But this time, I needed to retain the ingredients used, as I had only so much of Amber's blood in storage. I did not want to waste a single drop. Each spike, as I figured, would take a little less than one jar of blood, which gave me room for about nine kills, more than enough to make my point. I could only imagine the police attempting to solve the riddle that I was about to present to them. Time yields results, and the answers I uncovered were far more than adequate. I was finally ready. Stalking is an art form. I made a couple of dry runs over the course of a few days, just to practice. I would tail someone for a little while, trying to get as close as I possibly could before I was noticed. However, it's a lot tougher than you would think. I was actually slapped by a woman in Times Square when I broke that all-important space bubble of hers. Called me a pervert, too. I did my best to keep my cool with her, as any unwanted attention was not any goal of mine. But it was important training, and I took it seriously. Chess is a game of planning and forethought, and wasn't designed for children. The weeks were for practice, but Sundays were for the big game. Admittedly, I was nervous. More than nervous. I was literally shaking. I wasn't sure if I could go through with it, but before I knew it, it was 8pm on an unseasonably warm October night, and I was leaving my apartment with my briefcase in hand and murder on my mind. I chose Hell's Kitchen for my first foray. The vibe, the filth, and the alleyways made for an atmosphere ripe with opportunity. I parked my aging Chevy, took a deep breath and exited the vehicle. I caught one last glimpse of my face in the driver's side mirror before I shut the door. Another fork in the road, a before and an after. I would never be the same again. I sauntered about, away from the more popular avenues, looking for my perfect victim. About thirty minutes in, I was already becoming impatient. Lamplight was the enemy, and I couldn't spot one person leaving its glowing embrace. My footsteps became heavy and sweat formed on my brow. I began to question myself, and in a near panic, I turned around and began to make the trek back to my car, defeated. A part of me was relieved, though. Was it some sort of sign? My heartbeat slowed. I was going home. Sometimes in life, however, fate does intervene. I could have easily made it another 500 feet to my car and abandoned my grotesque plan for good. And I would have, too. But the man walking in front of me decided to change the direction of my story completely. He made a left. As simple as that. And I followed. His dress amazed me as we turned from the light into the dark alleyway. 
knee-length business overcoat, short-brimmed hat, not unlike what I was also wearing as I stalked my prey. Ironic, really. Robert Louis Stevenson and his idea of duality of man popped into my mind as my cunning hide followed a naive jekyll into the blackness. I stayed behind and attempted to match the man's footsteps, treading lightly heel to toe, until I needed to pick up the pace a bit and close in. All was working well until I reached about two yards from the man's heels. I clicked the briefcase open to procure the dreaded spike, which, to this man, produced a sound as alarming as a gunshot. His head turned towards me as he poised for escape. I lunged. The blood spike gripped firmly in my gloved hand. With the force of an airliner smashing into a skyscraper, my spike was planted firmly into this unknown man's throat. Just as the towers themselves, he too fell. I dragged the body to the side of the alley and pushed it tightly against the brick wall. I left the man, who was still gurgling away, with the spike lodged in his neck and blood pouring from the wound. There was not much coverage on the murder, except for the information that it was the stabbing of a man in his late forties. I expected as such, but I did wonder what they had found when they got to the scene. Was the spike completely melted by then? Were they able to differentiate another blood source on the victim? And what of the sawdust? Excitement crept into my being as I imagined the authorities pondering over such a strange situation. But it was not a time for rest. No. I needed to build upon the first step I had taken. And that's exactly what I did. There was no going back. For the next few weeks, I terrorized the five burrows with kill after kill, perfecting my ways as I went along. I traded in the briefcase, much too clumsy and loud, for an insulated carrying case to attach to my belt that I had fashioned from an old pistol holder. I also added more sawdust to the blood mixture, as on one occasion the spike did snap in half as it met a poor fellow's spinal column. The number of victims grew, as did my reputation in the press. I can't take credit for the latter, unfortunately. It was now the middle of November, and it seemed I no longer had the warmer temperatures of early fall on my side. The police had actual evidence to draw from now. The blood spike itself. Apparently, the murder weapon did not melt away like I had planned. Fuck. Too much sawdust, I'd bet. They even showed a photo of the actual spike in the newspaper, which completely blew my mind. Even stranger still, this coincided perfectly with the discovery of one of Amber's arms at the landfill, which was all over the news. Would they make the connection? Would they get closer to solving the riddle? I was confident that they wouldn't. Well... At least not until I had completed my final kill. Amber's blood was running out. I had just enough for one more example in pain. At the very height of my powers, with excitement bursting forth in my chest, 
I set out on one last hunting trip. The point was nearly made and the journey almost fulfilled. Blood for blood, life for life, all taken with impunity just as nature intends. I found myself this time in the middle of Greenwich Village as a light snow was beginning to fall. I envisioned the stark contrast of the fresh blood as it sprinkled onto the newly white-dusted street. A medium-sized crowd was departing the comedy cellar on McDougal Street. I was hoping to catch a straggler who may have been within walking distance of their apartment. It was a little more brazen than I was used to, but I had scoped it out earlier in the day and I had a feeling that I would be in luck. I walked in the midst of the showgoers and watched as they dispersed in different directions, taking their chug-a-choo breaths of steam with them. Minutes passed and the group became less and less, until there was only me and her. I had the woman in my sights from the very moment she stepped foot on the sidewalk, mainly because of the fur-lined hood she flipped up over her curly red hair. It was an easily visible target. And, as they all do, she eventually strolled right into the blackness, with a monster nipping at her heels. I approached, slowly and carefully. Close, closer still. Yes, that's it. Almost there, my love. I was a specter. Floating up from behind, spike in hand, living in the darkness in which we had found ourselves. At the very moment before the ultimate climax, I noticed something peculiar about this woman from my past. I paused, dead in my tracks, as I realized what it was. The scent that I was so very used to. Carol's scent. That damned Chanel number five. Our life together flashed before my eyes for a moment, until the beautiful dream was broken into by a quick flash of light coming from my victim. I had made a mistake. This woman, with camera in hand, warm from the comedy show she had just seen, snapped a photo of me deep in my pleasures but not just of me, of the spike as well. I clumsily tried to hide my face with my arm, spun around and ran back to my car, slipping and sliding on the icy sidewalks the entire way. I chucked the spike onto a low rooftop as I went. It was far from a graceful escape, more like an embarrassing one. I retreated back to my apartment, using whatever darkness and side streets I could manage as cover. Then, I simply waited for the inevitable. By the next morning, it was all over. The red spike, as I soon became known, was apprehended, and the terror ceased to be. And yes, I do realize the further irony at play. It was the memory of my late wife that served as the catalyst, and it was that same memory that ended my journey. Nevertheless, although one victim short and one jar of Amber's beautiful lifeblood wasted, 
I still had accomplished my goal. My pain became theirs. And now, it's yours as well. Always remember, blood is everything. Never take it for granted. Yours truly, The Red Spike. You've just heard Diary of the Red Spike by Matt Martinek. Matt Martinek is a singer-slash-songwriter and author from Johnstown, Pennsylvania, whose passion is the creative process itself. Whether it's through song or the written word, Matt's works always find their audience. His writing credits include short stories for Siren's Call magazine, Hellbound Books, and Coffin Bell Journal, amongst many other publications. Well, my friends, that concludes our episode this evening. After all of the blood and violence in these stories, I feel like a shower is in order. I mean, no one was ever stabbed to death in a shower, right? Thank you again for joining me this evening, and be sure to tune in next week as we slowly descend into the darkest part of the year. Stay warm, listeners. Stay safe. And most importantly, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Chirey's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's dark tales, Paul J. McSorley's fear from the heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.